Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. I just read my email. We have our first win. The dog park paper has been accepted. They don't know. We're about to tell them. So it turns out there are these three professors. And these three professors, Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay, and Peter Bogassian, and they decided to prank all of these stupid academic journals out there. This story is so great. I love it so much. There's a thing like academics work their careers to write one or two of these a year. Yeah. And so they're really hard to write. They're supposed to be hard to get published. So we wrote 20 of them in 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, seven of those got accepted. Four were actually published. And... Um, then we got at busted. least four more. Yeah, we got busted, and yeah. at least four more were on track. In 2018, three authors, Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay, and Helen Pluckrose, made headlines for an audacious academic hoax that involved submitting a series of bogus papers to various peer-reviewed academic journals. The, the, the most famous of the papers, as far as people having heard about it, was one that Peter wrote the first draft of, and that was the, the dog humping paper, as we'll refer to it. Um, what we wanted to get to was a conclusion, and then we made up all the crap in between yeah. to get to it, and the conclusion was feminism should train men the way we train dogs so that we can get rid of rape culture. You know, put them on leashes. You know, yeah. it's right in the paper. It's all it there. Unfortunately, we cannot put men on leashes. It's not politically feasible to put men on leashes. You guys wrote that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Or they to published yank it. their leashes when they misbehave? Yeah. And this so, paper didn't uh, just get published. The journal said that this was exemplary scholarship and gave it an award. <laughs> <laughs> Bogosian and his co-conspirators had become troubled by the rise of so-called grievance studies, university courses and papers which placed critical theories about racial, gender and sexual oppression at the centre of every academic discipline. This, they said, was going hand-in-hand hand with a woke cancel culture on campus that shamed into silence anyone who differed from the new politically correct orthodoxy. Academic freedom was being suffocated by rapidly developing ideologies which, once published, became dogma. Love that word, problematize. Yeah. Everything, everything word is that, everything. Uh, problematize everything. Dog parks, problematize yeah. everything. Problematize. <laughs> literally, anything can be problematized yeah. and looked at through a feminist lens. It's, it's, it's they a problematize great word. everything. Everything. The, the whole world's a their problem. Tool. <laughs> they called it the SoCal Squared hoax, and once exposed, it made headlines around the world. It was aimed at exposing what Bogosian and his friends believed were the vacuous foundations for a set of new social and political ideologies. But I was interested in something else. The fact Bogosian was no longer critiquing religion. 
After all, only four years earlier, he had joined me for a conversation in which he dismissed belief in God as irrational and even delusional. He had written a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists and was working on an app to help fellow skeptics persuade people of faith to abandon their religious beliefs. Yet, when I had approached Boghossian for another debate, shortly before his grievance study hoax was rumbled, he had told me he was no longer interested in taking out Christianity. It turned out his new enemy was now much closer at hand, the new quasi-religious beliefs in his own backyard of academia. It was one among many examples I was seeing of a sea change in the way many new atheists like Boghossian were now speaking about religion. Gone were the diatribes about the evils of institutional religion. Now they were fighting a different battle, the culture wars. But as I would discover, it wasn't just that atheists were changing their stance on Christianity. I couldn't help noticing a number of new secular thinkers giving God, faith and Christianity a second look. I'm Justin Briley, and throughout my working life, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics and believers. In this documentary series, I'm telling the story of why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'm speaking to those inside and outside the atheist movement and the many new thinkers beginning a new conversation on the value of faith. Along the way, we'll meet some of those who have found themselves surprised by God as they've made the journey from atheism to Christianity. Welcome to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Episode 7, The New Thinkers. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. I did, I did try transcendental meditation once. It right. absolutely nothing for me at all. That's not the one I would have recommended. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, right. I mean, I, they gave me a mantra. Right. And, 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 and at, at, at the same time as a lot of gobbledygook in Sanskrit, I think. Right. And I tried this mantra. And so I shut my eyes and I said the mantra to myself and, all that happened was I heard myself saying the mantra to myself, and, right. and that was it. And, right. and okay, so uh, so I, I didn't know that I was going to do this, but would you be willing to meditate with me for five minutes just okay. to, to explore? 
Yes. This was Richard Dawkins appearing on Sam Harris's podcast and getting ambushed into practicing some meditation. Harris later reflected on his fellow atheist's response. He, you know, he closes his eyes, he looks inside and there's nothing of interest to see, right? Like it's just, it's like it's not, he doesn't have the, the, um, the conceptual interest in him that would that would cause him to to persist long enough to find out that there's a there there right i couldn't stand it yeah so now i want to hear your about your experience what were you experiencing here that suggested well, that you I, couldn't I was stand listening it? to your words and i was i was keeping my eyes shut and i was doing everything you said i couldn't see the point of it what is the experience of not seeing the point of it? You're thinking, right? You're, th you're, yeah. you're in each of those moments. You're thinking, and you're not noticing that you're thinking. So you'll think, "What's the point of this?" Well, I, I was thinking. I was, I was aware that I was thinking. I think I was aware of my thoughts. I was aware that the thoughts came into my head. I suppose I felt. A, no, I mean, I, I wasn't. I, I, I wasn't bored. I wasn't. I wasn't. But I, I wouldn't be for twenty-four hours. You know, five minutes would be about my limit, I think. Right. Well, you might need a microdose <laughs> or even a macrodose. Yeah. This is not a problem with LSD or psilocybin or MDMA. I know that if I gave him 100 micrograms of LSD or five grams of, of mushrooms or, you know, 20, you know, 25 milligrams of psilocybin, there's just no possibility that nothing's going to happen. Here's the thing. Two of the best-known architects of new atheism getting together for a conversation, not about the evils of religion, but about finding meaning through meditation or psychedelics. While Dawkins may remain yet to be convinced, it's something Sam Harris has been doing for a while, reinventing himself as a mindfulness guru for the modern age, and sounding awfully like he now believes science and reason can only get you so far transcendence is where it's really at. Once you have one of these experiences on psychedelics or on a drug like MDMA, you know that there's a there there. You know that unconditional love is, is a possibility, right? You know that, that uh, feeling truly one with nature, right? I mean, just so one with nature that you're, you could spend 10 hours in front of a tree and find that to be the most rewarding experience of your of your life, right? That's a possible state of consciousness. Now, it may, it may not be the state of consciousness you want all the time. You know, you don't want to be the crazy guy by the tree, you know, who can't have a conversation about anything else. But, you know, it, it is among the best things that has ever happened to me. So what links Peter Boghossian's turn towards critiquing critical theories in academia and Harris's turn towards mindfulness and meditation? Well, both of them have stopped bashing traditional religion, and I believe they've both come to realise that mere atheism can't sustain our culture or any of us individually. People are inherently religious, and it turns out there are better and worse places to find meaning in life. Journalist Bethel McGrew. The evolution of Peter Boghossian is especially interesting to trace here because he went from, on the one hand, saying, you know, all Christians have a mental illness and we need to be out there 
uh, creating atheists. So very much following that, um, you know, mock them, ridicule them sort of playbook. And then he takes this very hard left turn, uh, not in the political sense, but he, he it's, a, it's a sharp turn because he suddenly realizes, oh, Christians aren't actually the main cultural threat here. They're actually not the main cultural enemy. Um, and the actual enemy is this new substitute religion, this, this new post-Christian post-modernism. So that's where you get uh, the Sokol Squared hoax and these things where it's like, okay, we still think that religion is the problem. We just think that uh, the, the main face of religion that we need to attack actually has this post-Christian shape because that's the form of religion that's actually taking over our society, um, taking over our culture as as Christianity kind of wanes. That's where we really need to um, focus our efforts. I think they're the people who are trying to build the kingdom of God on the planet Earth. It's, you know, to draw a metaphor, a religious metaphor. They are people who see an evil and they want to purge the world of that evil by any means necessary. This is James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian appearing on the Joe Rogan podcast shortly after the academic hoax came to light. And the evil being like privilege, privilege, hate, yeah. privilege, hate, and it's white the, supremacy, it's the new religion, so patriarchy. Christianity goes down. It's just you know the Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. The only reason you need new gods are because people don't believe in the old gods. Right. And so we have these religious modules or what have you in our brain, and the new religion is intersectionality. And we see and that really is what it is. It's right? exactly what it is. Yeah, and the we, parallels are. We've staggering. been writing about that and talking about that for years. Now. I've been studying religious real. psychology for yeah. years, and it's it's all over it the is, place. It is. It is political correctness is and paralleled with blasphemy. The, it's the in same the thing. Parallels of heresy. The yep. parallels. Of, that's exactly that's right. Exactly heresy. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's so stunning how easily people sort of slide into right. these preconditioned slots. It seems that Bogosian and Lindsay are among a number of atheists who have realised that even in a post-Christian age, you can't get rid of religion. Likewise, Jonathan Haidt, a secular Jewish psychologist, has also noted the so-called substitution hypothesis of swapping traditional religion for new quasi-religious stories. There's a kind of a new religion, in fact, linking back to everything we talked about before. Our religious minds have created a new religion of social justice. On campus, the religion is social justice. The most sacred thing in the world is the victim. We have blasphemy laws. If someone questions affirmative action, that's blasphemy. It is literally defined as a microaggression to question affirmative action. Uh, 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 Eric Posner, son of um, Richard Posner, Mm. associated questioning affirmative action with Holocaust denial. So there are blasphemy laws now. Um, So it's become a religion. Like Haidt and Boghossian, many other secular thinkers seem to have recognised that as the Christian story has retreated, religion has popped up in even more threatening forms in unquestionable orthodoxies that they've now devoted themselves to combating. It's turned many atheists into unlikely bedfellows with Christians who are also concerned by the turn in society towards an identity politics centred on critical theories of sexuality, gender and race, which see everything through the lens of oppressors and victims. 
But of course, there are victims and oppressors in our world, and one particular death in 2020 led to an avalanche of protests and a huge rise in consciousness around racial injustice. Please! Please, show of solidarity, protests against racism and police tactics are showing up around the world. CBS News senior foreign affairs correspondent Elizabeth Palmer is in London. In Britain, officials had asked people to stay away, but they weren't listening. Instead, thousands defied the COVID lockdown rules to deliver a message of solidarity with American protesters. Black Lives Matter! The police stood back and watched. Everyone here knows about Britain's racist past. In the city of Bristol, the crowd pulled down a statue of a 17th century slave trader, Edward Colston. Everywhere, George Floyd's death has struck a mighty chord. George Floyd's death was the catalyst for many conversations on reparations, social justice and critical race theory. Theologian Chinny MacDonald, director of Theos, says that recognising and addressing injustice is an inherently Christian thing to do, and so we shouldn't make a boogeyman out of critical theory. So I think when some people hear the term critical race theory, they hear critical and what they hear is, you're having a go at me because I'm white, and they take offense at that. But actually, critical race theory is an academic lens through which we look at how laws are made, how society functions, but through the lenses of, kind of race and power. And that's a very legitimate, to me, way of looking at the world. Um, now, some people might say that it, um, it overplays this idea of racism, actually people aren't that racist or society isn't that racist, but actually it might feel like that. But until you interrogate things, um, that's when you can um, assess whether it is or not. Or not. Mm. Um, I think one thing that I've noticed kind of post George Floyd um, murder and the Black Lives Matter protests that kind of took off again um, then was actually I was seeing people who I'd never heard talk about race, including white church leaders um, going on marches, suddenly recognizing that the world was potentially um, unjust um, or unequal for those in their congregations who are black and trying to do something about that. And I think what's happened um, tangibly over that time is that you're, you've seen a lot more um, black people in positions of leadership or mm. kind of getting kind of key jobs or um, uh, even uh, joining the cabinet. Um, and I think that those things are good and important, but I also think that they're only good and important if they make a difference for the black communities themselves. For those who felt the social justice movement had gone too far, the pejorative term woke came to be a label for all that was wrong with the progressive left. But as historian Tom Holland explains in this conversation with Glenn Scrivener, the term itself has deeply Christian roots. The, the, the word woke is a riff on the idea, obviously, on, on, on being awakened and the idea that they fall into sin, basically, um, and, and therefore need to be to be woken up from that and, and, and to wake up to the light, to the truth 
um, to, 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 to liberate themselves from the, the chains of oppression is fundamental to the history of Anglo-American Protestantism. There are you know, cycles of what are called awakenings that, that, that ripple through Protestant Britain and Protestant America. And I think it's clear that the civil rights movement was, was, was absolutely part of that. That was part of, of this cycle of, of awakenings. And it's why it had such an impact in Britain, because, because it's, it's part of the cultural DNA. Again, why, why did um, the death of uh, an innocent man um, put to death by the apparatus of a kind of imperial power have such an impact? Um, why did somebody cry, I can't breathe? Uh, have this 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 impact well uh, you know at the heart of western civilization f for centuries and centuries and centuries has existed the figure of someone suffering an unjust death dying because he couldn't breathe the danger of course is that when the christian virtues of emancipation and equality become unmoored from a christian worldview that includes forgiveness and redemption it can lead to modern justice activists looking religious in the worst sense of the word. I think that the doctrine of original sin stands as, as revealed as something that is profoundly democratic. Because if we're all sinners, then we're all at fault. And you can tell other people uh, to, you know, to, take, to take the beam out of their eye, but you should be aware of the fact that you have a moat in your eye as well. Right. And if you don't have that, yeah. then, then, um, then you feel all the more qualified to sit in judgment on, on, on those who you feel have, have failed to, to, to kind of emancipate themselves from sin. A lot of, of the, the, the kind of virtue spirals that have happened since the 60s, they're rooted in deeply Christian assumptions, but because they've cast off the, 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 the Christian doctrine of, of original sin, the risk is of a kind of judgmentalism and arrogance, I think. Many parts of our culture, even while advocating for greater equality, have adopted some of the worst aspects of religious judgmentalism by fermenting online mob justice and its attendant cancel culture. Even some apparent paragons of liberal and progressive values would come to experience this new quasi-religious zealotry. I tweeted, dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, Sleep with any consenting adult who'll have you. Live your best life in peace and security. But force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real. Hashtag, I stand with Maya. Hashtag, this is not a drill. The ensuing fallout from J.K. Rowling's tweet has led to one of the biggest culture war battles of modern times. J.K. Rowling has finally officially come out as a TERF, a.k.a. a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, which is literally just an accurate description of what a TERF believes, but apparently they think TERF is a slur. So for this video, I'm going to use a less loaded term. Uh, let's go with bigoted face. As you can probably tell, I am very, very upset and angry. So I'm going to take a minute to just breathe. Okay, this is the moment in world history that she chooses to double down on hurting trans people and women in general. I've looked up to J.K. Rowling my entire life. 
playing solo today and we're talking about the latest twist in the insane campaign against jk rowling we're at the point where she's being doxxed activists are showing up at her house showing her address she's being canceled from her own art jk rowling is more of a liberal to be totally honest she supports abortion uh she is a lot more liberal when it comes to economics and she doesn't really get into politics she truly just cares about sex versus gender and protecting women now uh, another harry potter star emma watson has come out against her tweeting this trans people are who they say they are and deserve to live their lives without being constantly questioned or told that they aren't who they say they are remember back in the day when conservatives they would criticize jk rowling for being too left-leaning or maybe even too woke. But now it's a different story. I think it's safe to say that now, JK Rowling is the most hated person in the trans community. Bethel McGrew. With JK Rowling, I think once again, you have this example of progressivism devouring itself because Rowling really was progressive in her time. Um, you even had her retrospectively making Dumbledore a gay character. You had um, this narrative of kids who were a little different, who were a little unusual, embracing their difference. Um, and, and so what you hear when you listen to these radical progressives who have turned on her uh, is you hear a, a resentment because they'll say, you know, we read your books we took them to heart. We saw ourselves in your narratives, your heroes' journeys. We thought that you were all about um, standing up for the weird guy, the little guy, the different guy. And now you're just deciding not to. What happened? You know, we were we were your biggest fans, and now you've betrayed us. Now you've let us down. Um, so on the one hand, I do sympathize with Rowling, but on the other hand, uh, there's this, again, this sense of arbitrariness, um, this, this sense of why, you know, why exactly do you stop here? Why do you draw the line here and not there? Because everything in your framework, everything in your worldview is sort of carrying you forward, uh, to this this sort of inevitable, all-inclusive, all-expansive conclusion. Um, so, uh, you know, she she has a case in one sense, but in another sense, she doesn't really have a case. A recent podcast series, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, compared the controversy around the Harry Potter author's critique of the transgender movement to the religiously motivated execution of innocent women in the Salem Witch Trials of the 1600s. It's an analogy also picked up by comedian Andrew Doyle, whose recent book, The New Puritans, is subtitled How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World. I wanted to draw these parallels with Salem because I think it helps make sense of it. This is Doyle speaking to Bridget Fettersey. I look back at what happened in Salem in New England in the late 1600s, and it was own, it was a really good community of decent people, God-fearing, you know. They, they didn't go around hunting witches. They didn't go around burning women. This was not something they did. It's just in this one year, just, just a little over 12 months, 
They all went a bit mad and they started believing these little girls who said they could see demons and witches everywhere. <laughs> and I see those little girls as a bit like the activists of today who think they can see Nazis everywhere uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and fascists and racists and homophobes and transphobes. And they see them everywhere. They see them in the shadows and they point and they scream and all of the people in authority say, okay, well, well, we'll change all our policies. We'll change the world around your visions. We will. We'll just do that. And that's exactly what happened in Salem. You know, if those little girls had been pointing witch and saying all of these people are in league with the devil and the magistrates and the ministers had just said, no, that's not true. No, no, no. I, th- I think you, you've just had a bit, you're a bit tired, maybe. Um, <laughs> and it would have gone away. No one would have been hanged. Uh, it would have gone away overnight. But the problem wasn't the girls. The problem was the magistrates, the ministers, the people in authority who went along with it, mostly because they were terrified, because if anyone said they might be wrong, they were the next to be hanged. They were the next to be accused, which I think is very analogous to cancel culture today. But a quasi-religious devotion to a political or social cause is not just the preserve of those on the progressive left. Many people on the right wing have their own political mythologies that, in recent years, has given rise to an almost cult-like devotion to a certain self-styled messiah figure claiming to be able to save the West and make America great again. Let's have trial by combat! All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building. Because today, the U.S. Capitol was overrun for the first time since 1814, and a woman died. Who could have seen this coming? everyone, even dummies like me. This is the most shocking, most tragic, least surprising thing I've ever seen. Thousands of Americans attack their own government for a lie. There was no fraud in the 2020 election, certainly not at the scale that would change the outcome. And yet they believed that. And that's what's so kind of terrifying about this moment is you saw thousands and thousands of Americans resort to violence against their own country for something that has no basis in reality. The January 6th insurrection left much of the world stunned, but it was part of a bigger picture, a growing willingness among much of the population to blindly swallow all manner of alternative facts, conspiracy theories and claims about stolen elections, again, often driven by social media. Whether on the so-called ultra-woke left or the QAnon right, there are new religious movements afoot in our culture. As we explored last week, even in a largely post-Christian West, we're all essentially religious deep down. We all need a story bigger than us to live by. But these smaller stories that many are choosing to live into today are increasingly incapable of sustaining us and are also tearing our culture apart. Did you know this podcast is also a book? The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, 
don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. Or if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. If you're feeling a bit depressed by now, I apologise. However, there is some good news to all of this, in my opinion. I believe the religious instinct, subverted as it often is by politics, nationalism and ideologies, can still be redeemed. People who are looking for a story to make sense of their life can be pointed towards a good, beautiful and true story of reality. As the new atheism has receded, it has left the search for a meaningful story on the table, and many thinkers from outside the church have begun to ask whether we can live without the Christian story that once gave so many their sense of meaning and purpose. In a previous episode, I told of how, over years of hosting conversations between Christians and non-Christians, I was increasingly meeting secular thinkers who seemed to be willing to give the Christian story a second look. Who are these people? In contrast to the new atheists, let me introduce you to a roll call of some of the new thinkers. And so I wrote a, a novel in which Byron literally was a vampire. Yes. And it told the story of his life, making kind of sense of various um, enigmatic episodes in his life and explaining it through the prism of vampirism, which I thought was actually very convincing. This is Tom Holland, co-host of the Rest is History podcast, describing his somewhat unlikely route towards becoming the well-known historical author he is today. And so I found myself locked into a contract that required me to write three more vampire novels. Okay. And it had never been part of my life plan <laughs> to, to be a vampire novelist. But all the vampire novels I wrote were set in specific periods of history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was um, the, the, the premise was basically taking the beliefs, the supernatural beliefs of a particular period in time and interpreting through the prism of, of vampirism, mm. um, which was actually quite a good discipline for what I then went on to do, which was to write history without vampires. <laughs> because I'd, I'd realised even as I was writing, I was much more interested in the history mm. than history I was. History could in, still be interested uh, without could, vampires. Well, history was actually much more interesting yeah. without vampires, right. was yeah. what I came to realise that, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. That's what Byron yeah. said. Yeah. Um, and so when I, I, I then came to write a book about the Romans, Rubicon, you mentioned it, mm -hmm. um, and then a book about Greeks and the Persians and so on. Um, and I, I took into writing about those periods of history, a sense that the supernatural really mattered mm. and that to adopt a, a kind of sneery, superior, purely materialist approach to the beliefs of, of ancient peoples was, I mean, it wasn't just that that it was unjustified, but that it risked seriously and grievously misinterpreting what ancient peoples were doing and why they were doing it. Mm. Um, and so that led me inexorably to an interest in Christianity because the more I thought about, say, what the, the Romans or the Athenians thought, believed, how they ordered their lives, how they structured their government, their, their, their perspectives on the entire fabric of of things seen and unseen, um, I came to realize that 
my ability to understand them was being obstructed basically by my Christian assumptions mm. that I was seeing through a glass darkly, mm. if, mm. if you like, yeah. and that the glass was dark. The darkness in the glass was a Christian darkness. It was the filter through which yeah. you were yeah. looking. Exactly. And, and, and the challenge was to, you know, if I was to, to try and make sense of the pre-Christian world was to try and filter that out. But to do that, I had to recognise and appreciate what it was about the filter that was Christian. Holland would end up writing a magnum opus, Dominion, a highly influential book charting the ways in which the Christian revolution has shaped the West's moral and cultural instincts. Christian minister and vlogger Paul van der Klee describes his journey. Tom Holland is a novelist who started writing about vampires and discovered that history is far more interesting than fantasy. When he time-traveled through his imagination to the ancient world, he discovered it was both more enchanted and more brutal than he ever thought. And in that journey discovered that the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth won the world over in a historical way our modern sensibilities are nearly completely unaware of and has been on a mission to convince the world that Jesus changed it and we're not paying attention. As we'll discover in the next act of this documentary, there's a lot more to be said about Tom Holland's personal journey with faith, but like many of his influential secular contemporaries, he's wrestled with the implications of the Christian story that built the West, but which so many people have rejected the truth of. Political commentator and journalist Douglas Murray is another of them. I mean, I'm not asking people to be believing Christians. I'm not a believing Christian. Um, but one of the things I say is we are Christians anyway, whether we like it or not, and we're probably finding that out at the moment. This is Murray speaking to Mark Stain. I mean, right. where the hell do people think the human rights came from? Yeah, right. I mean, these are, these are things that exist on the embers of Christian thought. But you know as well as I do, Douglas, that there are people, that there are a lot of people who say, well, I'm totally opposed to what Islam's doing, mm. and then they suddenly... But they say, I'm a secular, rational no. atheist. No, they're, they're a secular, rational Christian atheist. Right, right. They, they may not want to be, but they are. Yeah. They still dream Christian dreams. Yeah. They still have Christian thoughts and impulses. Yeah. Um, they don't actually behave as they would if they uh, had no baggage at all. But this right. is... This is uh, uh, one of the most important things, is, is what is our attitude towards this past? Yes. We on this side of the house think that our case for the proposition is indubitable. As the centuries go by, religion has less and less room to exist and perform its obscurantist interference with the search for truth. In the 21st century, it's high time, finally, to send it packing. As a, quote, Christian atheist, Murray has not been afraid to clash with his new atheist peers on the subject of faith. In this Cambridge Union debate from 2013 on whether religion has any place in the 21st century, Richard Dawkins and co-secularist Andrew Copson appeared to be winning the day until Murray got up to speak. 
It's a very awkward position to be in. I, first of all, because I am uh, not an agree in agreement with very much said by my own side most of the time. <laughs> I am on this side very uncomfortably because this statement, this house believes religion has no place in the 21st century, is to me as an atheist not just an overstatement, but very wrong indeed. The reason I wanted to speak on this side is for this reason. In this whole debate, which does matter very much and will matter very much in the century ahead of us, there is a great possibility of completely uh, distancing views which, at the very least, you should listen to. And I've already sensed it this evening. Andrew Copson, uh, in his, I thought, somewhat presumptuous speech, if I may say so, um, portrayed a future in which, if we just dropped religion, we would be running into the sunlit uplands, where everything would be terrific, we would be reasonable creatures in a reasonable universe with reasonable desires reasonably answered. Are you sure about that? <laughs> Are you absolutely sure that if you tell a generation, two generations, three generations, religion has, and let's remember, no place in the 21st century. Are you sure that we arrive at those sunlit uplands? Or is it possible that if you tell people enough that they live a meaningless life, in a meaningless universe, in a meaningless existence, that you may just get something like a perpetual version of the only way is Essex. <laughs> Believe it is true or not, religion provided, and I would say provides and will provide in the future, an opportunity for people to ask serious questions about themselves, ask serious questions about the universe and their existence. If the 21st century is to work, it will involve religion knowing its place, but it will also involve atheists and secularists knowing that their place is not to dismiss, deride, and laugh at as meaningless something which seeks for meaning. If the 21st century is to work, religion will have a place. People can agree with Professor Dawkins and his colleagues, but no rational person could agree with this motion. Thank you. In the end, Douglas Murray's side won the audience over, winning the debate 324 votes to 136. Douglas Murray is super bright, super articulate, in an interesting box because on one hand, here's a gay man who is Christ-haunted and would love nothing better than to live in a re-enchanted world even as he was friends with some of the premier new atheists. Watching how he wrestles with faith and culture, he'll, he'll be, he's one of the, he's one of the guys to watch um, by all means. And he, I think he, like many in Christian history, he'll be an enigma and he'll continue to be, but boy, what a ride. Bethel McGrew. Um, he doesn't despise where he came from. And I think this distinguishes him importantly from new atheist thinkers because there's a bit of an ache in Murray's writing. Uh, there's, a, there's a note of sadness. Um, and what you're hearing there 
is you're, you're hearing the wistfulness of the lapsed sincere Christian, someone who really did believe all this stuff at some point and still wishes he could go back somehow. Um, and so he understands what he's left behind. He understands what the West has left behind uh, in a very personal way, I think. It was, in fact, Murray who inspired the central metaphor for my book and this podcast, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. When he joined me for an edition of The Big Conversation from Premier Unbelievable, he referenced Matthew Arnold's famous poem, Dover Beach, and its image of the melancholy, long, withdrawing roar of the Sea of Faith. For you, obviously, you, you came to the point where you couldn't believe that this story was literally true, but you miss it. You even described yourself as a Christian mm. atheist. But if, if Christianity is the story that, that did work and, and the stories that we're now telling aren't working and putting us out of joint, can you see any way in which the Christian story, even as a non-Christian, could, could start to make inroads again? Is it, is it simply about the church standing oh, yes. up again and being a bit more confident? I, I do always think that the interesting thing about the CFA is there's no reason why it can't come back in. The sea doesn't only withdraw, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's the point of tides. And, and uh, but, but for that to happen, what would be on offer would have to be radically different from everything else in the society that's on offer. That's one of the reasons why I've been very interested. I can't remember if we talked about this with Justin Ford. I've been very interested in recent years watching um, contemporaries of mine who have uh, seen through, looked at, stared at the same some of the same problems that, that I have and have come to conclusions of their own in a religious sense. I've been very struck, for instance, by not a large number of people, a relatively small number of people, but people I think of as being very intelligent thinking people, who have, for instance, converted to Catholicism. And I see, uh, I can think of one person who is an Anglican, one person who was born and brought up a Muslim, and somebody else I know who was an atheist throughout. And I, I, I don't think this is typical by any means. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that among People I know who are very thoughtful, who've thought about these things, have come from a wide range of different directions. They have they have gone towards that, and what has struck me most is that they have gone to the most traditional form of that faith. And I'm talking about people who've gone into Tridentine uh, mass attending Catholicism. They don't go to uh, the the weaker forms of it because they want to drink as directly from the well as they can. I was seeing a similar trend to Murray, a steady stream of surprising adult converts to Christian faith, often drawn to its most ancient traditions. Murray himself confesses he feels drawn to the mystery of faith, Christ haunted, as Paul Vanderclay put it, but can't quite bring himself to step in. Everybody in their lives will experience moments of um, awesome feeling of some kind, transcendence. It might happen with uh, seeing a person. It might feel in, in, in uh, eros, it might be in human love. It might be in a, in a place, in a building. It might just be waking up in the morning. Um, everybody at some point in their life has to contend with this question of what is this thing that I feel to be true and cannot reach? Christians would obviously say it's a Christian God. 
I think the rest of us have to say, we'll live in the question. Another secular voice recognising the positive value of Christian faith is journalist and female rights advocate Louise Perry, author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I think that what we've seen post-sexual revolution, um, which obviously coincides perfectly with the process of dechristianization, which is the same great historical event, really, of the last century, is um, has been a tearing down of those institutions and norms and an attempt to sort of... Um, reconstruct society on a new image and I think that that has proved so far to mostly have been a failure and has actually left most of the most vulnerable people worse off including women and children I mean I think that the real the real losers from the sexual revolution in particular are poor women Perry is an unexpected advocate for the historic value of Christian morality. She grew up in a secular environment and was educated in the same school of liberal progressive attitudes towards sex and relationships as everyone around her. But it was working in a rape crisis centre that led her to research and write her book, a spirited critique of the porn-saturated, hypersexualized hookup culture of the modern world. She has been increasingly arguing that a return to a Judeo-Christian sexual ethic of chastity and monogamy is in the best interests of both men and women. Indeed, says Perry, feminism itself is bread of Christianity. I really do think that um, feminism comes out of Christianity. Feminism is completely reliant on Christian moral principles. And I think that feminists who set themselves up in opposition to Christianity, you know, the Handmaid's Tale kind of representation mm. of this sort of... Um, I mean, people forget that the Handmaid's Tale was really written about the Iranian Revolution, but the, the imagery from the TV show and so on is all about Puritanism and, mm. and, and sort of setting up Christianity as the bogeyman. Um, I think that view completely misses the legacy of Christianity that is, in, that is still very evident within feminism. And I think that actually feminists who set themselves up in opposition to Christianity, this is particularly true in America, where obviously Christian right is much more sort of um, fearsome force, are soaring off the branch on which they sit. The process of dechristianization that starts in the 1960s, where, I mean, doesn't start, it accelerates in the 1960s, it starts earlier than that. I mean, um, even in the 19th century, you've got a falling away of Christian belief, right? And that's what Matthew Arnold was writing about in Dover Beach. But in the 1960s, you have that sharp acceleration. And I think it's Tom Holland who's described this as being something like a second reformation. Like that's how big a, a historical mm. event it is. And I am extremely um, nervous about what full de-Christianization means. And I don't think enough people think about what it actually means. Because I think so many um, secular progressives don't realise quite how deeply Christian their thinking is. And they don't realise quite how quite how unique actually the set of ideas inherited to Christianity are in terms of, say, you know, the radical sort of spiritual equality of men and women and of rich and poor and, and the fact that um, the vulnerable people shouldn't be exploited, they should be protected. You know, these kind of really fundamental ideas, what we call human rights in a mm. silly kind of, you know, they're not human rights, they're, yeah. they're, they are um, a culturally unique concept. Theological premises. Yeah. 
Standing shoulder to shoulder with Louise Perry is Mary Harrington, another leading feminist writer taking a distinctive approach to the value of faith and tradition when it comes to women's rights. Her recent book, Feminism Against Progress, argues that the modern values and technology, which separate gender from the body, children from procreation and sex from relationships, is detrimental to women. In this interview on The Irreverend Podcast, she agrees with Louise Perry on the way modern feminists owe more to the ancient faith of Christianity than they realise. And it was really, it was really the Christian, the Christian understanding of sexuality, which which made the made, which first made the injunction on men to constrain their sexuality and and to to sanctify it really in the context of marriage. Yeah. Um, so and and Louise's Louise's point is that you know a great a, a you know much more much more than really contemporary at least feminism wants to acknowledge of the the moral framework which which underpins women's women's critique of you know, of you know rape culture for example you know is founded on that on that christian framework yeah um of, and and to the extent to the extent that the women's that the feminism in its contemporary form sets itself against christianity because because patriarchy yeah. or um, or because because christian patriarchy yada yada yeah. um yeah. they they are effectively sawing off the branch they're sitting on yeah, yeah. Um, and Louise's line, which I think really captures what we're talking about, is if you if if you hated Christian patriarchy, you're going to absolutely hate post post Christian patriarchy. Mary Harrington has pursued the eschaton of radical feminism, and is ready to tear it down, and she is ready to do it, bouncing a child on her lap. Um, walking through the corridors of church, daring those people to actually live what they profess, because she has, with all earnestness and conviction, pursued their program and found it wanting and is not afraid to tell absolutely everyone exactly what she thinks about it. There are great, great swathes of the of the internet badlands, which are you know fully committed to bringing back post-Christian patriarchy. Or you know, I mean, they might they see it as pre-Christian. The the, the masculinist ideology is explicitly um, uh, constructed, you know, in opposition to the Christian idea of complementarity and yeah. of yeah. you know mutual service and sanctifying sexuality within marriage. And I, I I do I do wonder sometimes whether whether feminists are fighting the wrong enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or really that, that they they end up conflating conflating uh, ideas and um, you know, group groups of ideas, you know, particularly those that come out of Christianity, which are actually you know, at a deep level on their side, yeah. on our side, with 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 a set of a set of others which which pose a much more insidious danger. Harrington is another significant voice in secular circles pointing back to Christian faith. In fact, she is a church-going, mildly heretical Anglican, in her own words. In an interview with The Spectator, she spoke of her hopes and fears for the future of the church. I, I often find myself thinking about, you know, the prognosis for public Christianity. We, we attend our local Anglican church, which is it's in the same doldrums as most Anglican churches. I was looking around and I was thinking, is it just over? And, and actually, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think it may well be over for the Church of England as a public political institution in the role it's played in Britain's political systems really since 
since since Henry VIII did what he did. That may well be over, uh, but I don't think the Christian faith is over. Mm. I, I just don't, because it's had years in the wilderness before, mm-hmm. and here we still are, mm-hmm. you know, two thousand years later. It's not just British thinkers reassessing the value of faith. Over in the USA, former professor of evolutionary biology Brett Weinstein has for some time been taking a different approach to Richard Dawkins and the new atheists who dismissed the growth of religion as an unfortunate evolutionary misfiring. I would argue there's a a simple way of reconciling the correct understanding that religious belief often describes truths that in many cases fly in the face of what we can understand scientifically with the idea that these beliefs are adaptive. Um, I call it the state of being literally false and metaphorically true. Weinstein came to international attention when his critique of politically correct college campus ideology led to him and his wife Heather Haying being ousted from their positions at Evergreen State College after angry student protests. Paul Vanderclay. Bert Weinstein is a brilliant liberal progressive whose mount turned on him and like like a whole cadre of academics found himself without a career because he was honest and sincere about a lot of the values beneath his liberal progressivism and had to come to terms with the fact that the telos of his vision wasn't going to happen. And so he is now an exile from his people sort of wandering in podcast land as sort of a a lonely, a lonely voice out there. I think actually both he and Heather hiring his wife would do well to um, find themselves a home in the church. Whether Weinstein finds a home in the church or the Jewish synagogue of his grandparents, as it stands, he holds to the idea that while he doesn't believe religion to be true, he still believes it exists because it is useful. A belief is literally false and metaphorically true if it is not factual, but if behaving as if it were factual results in an enhancement of one's fitness. To take an example, if one behaves in, let's say, the Christian tradition uh, in such a way as to gain access to heaven, one will not actually find themselves at the pearly gates being welcomed in, but one does tend to place their descendants in a good position with respect to the community that those descendants continue to live in. So if we were to think evolutionarily, the person who is behaving so as to get into heaven has genetic interests. Those genetic interests are represented in the narrow sense by their immediate descendants and close relatives. In the larger sense, they may be represented by the entire population of people uh, from whom that individual came. And by acting so as to get into heaven, the fitness of that person, the number of copies of those genes that continue to flourish in the aftermath of that person's death will go up. So the belief in heaven is literally false. There is no such place, but it is metaphorically true in the sense that it results in an increase in fitness. 
another secular Jewish thinker, psychologist Jonathan Haidt, author of best-selling books such as The Righteous Mind, takes a very similar view to Weinstein about the value of religion. I get invited to speak at Christian colleges and Christian associations and podcasts sometimes because uh, even though I'm a you know, center, center-left atheist Jew. Um, I, they, when they read The Righteous Mind, they find it useful and they see that I don't have the usual academic contempt for religion. I actually uh, think religion, uh, at least in the United States, religion on net is, is a very good thing. And so when I speak to Christian audiences, I often start off by saying, you know, um, we actually agree on something extremely important, which is that there is a God-shaped hole in everyone's heart. And Pascal didn't say exactly that, but he said something more or less to that effect. And I say, yeah, there is a God-shaped hole in our heart. We just disagree on how it got there. And you think it's there because we long for God and God exists and God fills it. I think I, I'm a naturalist. I think we evolved to be religious. And I tell that story in The Righteous Mind, how we evolved for sacredness and gods and, and, and how gods have evolved culturally. Um, and so I, I think central to our conversation here, or rather we're having this academic conversation in the context of a country going insane with bad religions. And by bad religions, what I mean is people have found something that fits the whole. And so it's deeply satisfying, but it makes them behave in ways that are incredibly destructive to a liberal democracy. Whereas the older religions at least went through a process of evolution, especially those that made it in a free country like America, they tend to be kind of nice. Many of these secular thinkers, whether they're coming from a historical, social, cultural, biological or psychological perspective, seem to be saying similar things. The new atheists were wrong to dismiss religion. There's more here than meets the eye. But the same question remains for them as the one I posed in a previous episode to Jordan Peterson, perhaps the leading secular intellectual arguing for the social, cultural and psychological value of faith. Is it really true? Ben Sixsmith religious belief systems like don't just claim to have a kind of cultural value they claim to be true and it, you know if there is a god there's at least some extent to which he doesn't really care if you thought he told nice stories he cares if you believe in him so um this kind of cultural christianity as much as it has a lot of virtues um as uh, a socio-cultural force it's also to some extent it's a philosophical third end uh, I worry because you can kind of go, yeah, it, it, it's nice to believe. You know, I don't, but you might, you know, enjoy it. Um, so I, I don't think it's a very meaningful alternative uh, to the kind of crises that we're facing. It's, 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 it's a more interesting alternative than the kind of nothingness that it replaced. But um, I'm not sure how far it takes us. Elizabeth Oldfield, host of The Sacred, a podcast from Christian think tank Theos, also has concerns about the movement I've been describing. She too has noticed a change in openness among public intellectuals towards faith, but fears that intellectual fence-sitting is far too often the result. I, I, I have a strange ministry to middle-aged men having midlife metaphysical crises. For whatever reason, God often puts me in the path of men in their 30s and 40s and 50s, often but not uniquely, who had some kind of Christianity in their childhood, rejected it because for intellectual reasons or whatever. 
a lot of them have gone and done a lot of meditation. They've, you know, done stoicism. You know, you know, you could look at Paul Kingsmill's story, which you write about in the book. You know, looked everywhere else except the place they started. And then in that lovely T.S. Eliot thing, you know, is to come around and know the place where we began for the first time. I'm seeing a lot of that kind of actually how do I live impending mortality, much healthier response to the kind of midlife sense of your own mortality than buying a red Ferrari is going, she maybe I'm going to go to church. And I'm like, yay. Um, the trouble with that group is that often they hover. They are, they are hyper-intellectualized often. You know, they're listening to John Vivekis, they're listening to Ian McGilchrist, they're listening to Jordan Peterson. They're doing mindfulness. They might have tried some psychedelics. We can get onto that because that crosses the left-right divide. Um, you know, I spoke to Matthew Taylor on my podcast years ago and he said, look, I'm convinced of the, the value of, of Christianity for societies. I'm even convinced of the value of it for individuals, but I just can't get there. And there is a lot of men who I pray for and I talk to and I'm friends with where actually that moment of surrender I would I don't know anything about Jordan Peterson's personal spiritual life but it's one way you could narrate that you get it all intellectually but you just sit on the fence trying to make the Rubik's Cube work so that it doesn't feel risky to get on your knees and that's that's a sadness and I think it's only if the church is able to walk alongside people in that moment and invite them into yeah like at some point you have to stop thinking you can make all of this make sense in your head It's also a fact that many of the thinkers profiled in today's show are fairly conservative-leaning in their politics. For a while, many of them banded under the moniker of the intellectual dark web, a loose affiliation of politically incorrect commentators concerned at the progressive drift of culture. Does that mean this potential rebirth of belief is only going on among the anti-woke in society? Not necessarily. Elizabeth Oldfield believes that while many of the voices receiving the most attention are often culturally conservative, the meaning crisis is actually reaching all segments of society. She describes leading a regular candlelit contemplative service praying Compline with a community that ranges from feminists and environmentalists to polyamorous Marxist philosophers and those experimenting with psychedelics. She sees a growing hunger among such left-leaning seekers for something that can stem the meaning crisis, but fears that if the church allies itself too closely with the conservative voices who want to champion the civilization and order that Christianity has given us, we may alienate a large swathe of meaning seekers. And I just cannot say strongly enough, as someone who is like out and about listening to people in kind of post-liberal and conservative circles, but also, and perhaps more unusually, in progressive, environmental, activist circles, how much the public rhetoric from the church of institutional failure, political power grab, like the way we talk about gender and sexuality issues how much it just like stops dead in their tracks what seems to me to be like a wind of the spirit blowing and some of them are able to get over it because i've seen i've seen various people come from very um very atheist perspectives to really being in a place where they would probably call themselves christians but it's because they found 
bits of the church that they feel are welcoming to them. Um, the contemplative t- traditions tend to be places they can go. Um, but yeah, the I think I think we need to take extremely seriously the damage of the church's political project to its missional aims, or not all ch- of the church's political project, but but that that like when we get into the anxiety thing of like defend our space, defend our values, um, it 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 really breaks my heart how harmful it can be. In the end, says Oldfield, the church needs to transcend the culture wars. The danger is when the church and Christianity becomes another tool for political purposes, be they on the left or right. While she's encouraged by the new openness she's seeing in many quarters, she advises caution against hitching the church's wagon to any particular charismatic public individuals. That need in us for someone to say you're okay can be used against us and can be a temptation and so in it pay when someone in public says something nice about christianity i think we really need to stay alert to what's going on character wise and what they might be saying about other people that jesus wouldn't say and what that might mean so that yes that like letting ourselves be seduced is dangerous. Having written a whole book profiling some of these new thinkers making overtures towards Christianity, I really appreciate the note of caution sounded here by Elizabeth. The question is whether this new openness to the value of faith can translate into real Christianity, not simply a passing cultural political phenomenon. But I think there is reason to believe something is happening at a spiritual level too. Even after the publication of my book, I've been struck by continuing to meet many new cases of former secular people opening up to Christianity in surprising new ways. The most extraordinary example in recent weeks has been the case of Ayan Hirsi Ali. Hirsi Ali rejected the fundamentalist Islam she grew up with in Somalia and, after fleeing to the Netherlands, had become an outspoken critic of religion by the mid-2000s with a best-selling book, Infidel. She became a good friend of Hitchens and Dawkins and was very much part of the New Atheist movement. But in a recent article for Unheard titled Why I Am Now a Christian, a reference to atheist Bertrand Russell's famous essay Why I Am Not a Christian, Percy Alley describes why she began to doubt her atheism. In Holland, I made some atheist friends who said, this, is, this has nothing to do with religion. We've also struggled with our own religious darkness and intolerance. And so Christianity, they said, was exactly the same as Islam. And later on, when I met Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and so on, I think I jumped probably too soon on that atheist bandwagon and accepted the proposition that all religions are the same and are equally bad and equally dark too quickly. Hersey Ali says she eventually found atheism insufficient to counter the growth of global authoritarian regimes, the rise of Islamism and what she terms the viral spread of woke ideology. 
In contrast, she came to realize that everything she values about Western civilization has been built on the Judeo-Christian tradition, and so she has chosen to embrace it. Western civilization risks becoming a cut flower. Um, and, it, and, and I think that's what we don't want. We don't want to pretend, I don't want to pretend that all of these great things, the nation states, the universities, all of these economic advances, military advances, that somehow they just came floating along with the Enlightenment. I think the Enlightenment is a product of that. And Tom Holland, who also writes for Unhad, in his book Dominion, I think has done a very detailed historical background uh, without hiding the negative stuff, without hiding the bad stuff. Mm. Um, where, you know, how these things are linked. And I think we've been asking the wrong question. Um, you know, can you prove that uh, there is a God? And I'm not sure that that's the right question. The question was asked, it was answered, uh, to the degree that you have people who uh, ended it, that debate with, let's agree to disagree. Even that stance in itself is very Christian and very Western. That's not how it ends in Islam. Let's agree to disagree. You don't believe in, <laughs> you don't believe in God, give me your head. Um, mm. um, and so, so that's, I think, where, and I think we sort of achieved that. And I think it's a pinnacle. And the next stage now is to preserve it for the next generation to transmit it to the immigrants who have chosen with their feet to come here. In the immediate wake of her announcement, a number of critics, both Christian and atheist, accused Hersi Ali of embracing Christianity for purely cultural reasons. But in her article, she also writes, I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? And in a conversation for Unheard, released a week or so after her article was published, Hersi Ali also elaborated on her spiritual journey. But on a, on a very personal level, I went through a period of crisis, um, very personal crisis of fear, anxiety, depression. I went to the best therapists money can pay. I think they gave me an explanation of some of the things that I was struggling with, but I continued to have this um, big spiritual hole or need, as you call it. Um, I tried to self-medicate. I tried to sedate myself. Um, I drank enough alcohol you could use to sterilize a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> it would not, uh, nothing helped. Um, I continued to read, you know, books on psychiatry and the brain, and none of that helped. All of that explained a small piece of the puzzle, but there was still something that I was missing. 
Um, and then I think it was one um, therapist who said to me early this year, I think I am, you're spiritually bankrupt. And at that point, I was in a place um, where I had sort of given up hope. I was in this place of darkness and I thought, well, what the hell? Uh, I'm going to open myself to that and see, see, you know, Asta, what are you talking about? Mm. And we started talking about faith and a belief in God. And I explained to her that the God I grew up with was a horror show. Um, he created you to punish you and frightened you. And, uh, you know, as a girl and as a woman, you're just a piece of trash. And mm. so I said to her, I explained to her why I didn't believe in God and more than that, why I actually hated God. And then she asked me to design my own God. And she said, if you had the power to, you know, attribute a higher power, if, if you had the power to, to make your own God, what would you do? And <laughs> as I was going on, I thought, yeah, right. Uh, that's actually a description of Jesus Christ and Christianity at its best. And so instead of inventing yet another new God. <laughs> um, I started diving into, um, in, into that story. Um, and so far, um, you know, my husband and I go, went about both of us saying we're atheists. And now it's, I like this story. I exploit and um, the more I look at it, the more I don't want to say I'm fulfilled, but I feel I no longer have this need, this, this void, I have to say, and I feel like I'm, I'm going somewhere. Ayan Hersi Ali says she and her husband have started attending church. I wish her well as she dives into this story. I understand the concern of the critics, but the reality is that I don't think anyone comes to Christian faith from entirely pure motives. Indeed, it is precisely our sinful state that necessitates the mercy we receive when we come to God. And maybe that's a way to think about the many new thinkers, some edging their way towards God or simply pointing others in his direction. Jordan Peterson and the other public intellectuals such as Ayan Hersey Ali who are following in his wake all have their particular political opinions. But I think they have all, to one degree or another, correctly identified a problem in the West. A lack of meaning, an identity crisis, the anxiety produced by living in a world without a story to live by. But what can solve it? New atheism has resolutely failed, but I don't believe the intellectual dark web or its cohort of new thinkers will successfully untangle this problem either. Yes, they are asking important questions, but they're far from having all of the answers. Even someone with the cultural influence of Jordan Peterson, someone explicitly encouraging people to reconsider the value of Christianity, can't save the West from its meaning and identity crisis. Why so? Because all these thinkers are pointing people back towards a story that is only useful if it is true. Yes, it may be metaphorically powerful, 
But the power of a metaphor is contained in the fact that it ultimately points towards something that exists in reality. We cannot live on metaphors alone. We can't use poetry, psychology and myth to hold God at arm's length forever. What if this 2,000-year-old story is only able to reconnect with our deepest desires for meaning, purpose and identity because it is the good, beautiful and true story to which all other stories point? I sense that this generation is becoming primed to hear that story afresh. You've been listening to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Patreon supporters get early access to new episodes of the podcast plus bonus content. Find out more and about other ways to support this show at justinbriley.com. Material from The Big Conversation was used by kind permission of Premier. Visit premierunbelievable.com for full shows. Coming up next time, a bonus episode where I'll dive deeper into the extraordinary story of Ian Hersey Alley with two special guests, Elizabeth Oldfield and Glenn Scrivener. Join us for that. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and with support from the Jerusalem Trust, editing assistance by Isaac Simmons. You can find links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Finally, please do subscribe to this podcast, rate, review us and share it on social media. It helps others to discover this new documentary series. Plus, as ever, you can get the next episode a week early right now when you support at justinbriley.com. The link is with today's show. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.